there are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination. The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Story Podcast. Sammy, this week is good. Yeah, this week was really fun. Every week is good. What are we talking sure. about? Yeah. Every week, every, all these people that we keep getting to sit down with are just really amazing, creative people. But today was especially fun because we got to do it in studio. All mm-hmm. of us were here. They're always time. better yeah. in person when we'll so we all too. get to be together. Alan Clark, uh, who's an incredible photographer. Literally, while we are sitting here recording, I have his website open, alanclarkphotography.com. I'm just flipping through his portfolio. George Bush, Jim Gaffigan, Major League Baseball players and football players, Julian Assange, Imogen Heap. There are rappers. There are rock stars like Dave Matthews, Condoleezza Rice, Cal Ripken Jr., Tom Brokaw. I mean, this is this is an unbelievable this portfolio. Amazing portfolio. Yeah. Um, like Regis Feldman. <laughs> <laughs> like, like this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and he has so many stories because behind all of these photos in his portfolio, there's just amazing stories about what he's learned and. Um, you know, Alan is still a young guy, but he's lived a lot of life and has so much experience that I just feel like he has a wealth of knowledge, not just for other photographers, but for any, any artist and storyteller in this interview. So I'm, I'm super excited about this one. Do you want to, you want to tease people about something that we talked about? Yeah, we got into a lot of different topics that I really excited to hear for another photographer speak on. One of the things that made today interesting is that you are married to a photographer. And so this was oh. this was a unique perspective, right? To sit down and talk to another photographer. Yeah, it was really interesting. I am married to a photographer, kind of consider myself a photographer in a way that I have an iPhone and I <laughs> carry it around and take pictures, which I think even if you are that type of photographer, you will enjoy this interview. Yeah, because this isn't like an interview that talks about what the settings on your camera should no, be. No, no, totally. It's more about perspective and um encouraging you to get out of your comfort zone get the shot show up how to just create art in general this is relevant to everyone you guys are going to love this one uh so alan clark stopped by the studio um and sammy and i got to sit down and ask him a bunch of really great questions so here is our interview with celebrity photographer alan clark So excited to have Alan in the studio with us today. He has a fresh cup of tea. Are you under the weather? No, but I'm getting ahead of it. (laughs) (laughs) Getting ahead of it. Getting ahead of it. It seems like maybe the potential story of your life is you trying to get ahead of it. I think that's the way I've always viewed your career is how long have we known each other? At least seven years. Yeah, I think wow. it's been seven years. Seven or eight years, and I've always felt like you were on the forefront. You were always really innovative and a step ahead of everyone else. Uh, a lot of other artists in town were always looking to you, and it's interesting. I, I've told you this before. 
you know, as other people have taken photos of me around town and I meet another photographer, not because I went and hired them, but because they were assigned to me by, you know, yeah. doing an editorial or feature in a magazine or something like that. We start talking photographers. There's always this moment where we're talking about other photographer friends and I say, hey, do you know Alan Clark? He's a good friend of mine. Every time I mention your name, there's always this response that's sort of like, he's this Nashville legend that they all speak of. And <laughs> most of them either worked for you at some point or assisted you at some point yeah. or were mentored by you. Have you just been around that long? <laughs> I think that's one of my favorite things from uh, the movie Groundhog Day. Uh, Bill Murray's saying that, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm God. That's just that, uh, you know, I've just been around forever. <laughs> <laughs> so take us back. When did you begin photography? Yes. Um, that's a tricky question. I started actually taking pictures long before I ever, I ever became a professional. I just, like everybody else, I messed with it. You know, I, yeah. um, I can remember my first job was at a grocery store in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And I, I, uh, all I was focused on was getting a camera. And that was my only reason for having the job to begin with. I was, How old were you? I was uh, ninth grade. So that, what wow. is that, 14? Yeah. 13? Yeah. And... Um, what was that, like DSLR camera or point and shoot? Uh, none of the above. <laughs> <clears throat> it was like one of the ones that you uh, see only in books, but they call it vintage. <laughs> now, I, you know what? I still have the camera. I actually, at one point, I think about four or five years into my career, I, I, sold, I was trying to sell off a bunch of stuff. And I took it down to uh, the camera shop here in Nashville, Dury's, And uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to get rid of this. And, and I went, I literally, I'd sold it to them. And then I drove to the studio. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? That was like my first camera. What am I doing? And I turned around. I called them back. And they were like, uh, you're, we've already sold the 50-millimeter lens. You better get down here. So I turned around and went straight back to the camera store and got my camera back, and I still have it. Wow. But, yeah, that's when it started. It started that young for me. It just – it's almost like I, I didn't even know this was what I was supposed to do, but, you know, someone else did or mm. – you know, just that seemed like the path, the career path took off, took off for me instead of me trying to choose it. I feel like it chose me, if that makes any sense. So you started shooting photos when you were ninth grade, you get your camera. What was next after that? Where, where, tell me more about the gap between then and then when you feel like as an adult, you became a photographer. I thought that I was supposed to do the music industry and I ended up going towards that. I, I went to uh, Free Darwin University for communication. I tried radio. I, you know, I was just trying all these things. I always was worried that I was forgetting something or missing out on what I was really supposed to be doing. And for some reason, I just wasn't convinced. I think it's, I don't think that anyone ever said no to me, but I feel like I said no to myself. I feel like I was like, surely I can't have this as a career. I don't want to shoot school photos. I don't want to shoot everything that, you know, that whatever I saw the guy doing in my hometown. I thought that's what I was supposed to do, and that's not it at all. I, I just didn't know that you could get paid to shoot in surfing magazines or skate magazines or fashion magazines or album covers or whatever it was. I just didn't know that you could be told that you could do that. It wasn't that no one told me no. I just didn't know the possibilities. So I tried everything. I tried radio. I tried the music industry. I even got so far as I was an agent at the William Morris Agency the year before I became a photographer. and. I was taking pictures of bands, I guess just because of that, I was still hanging around a lot of music people and they were eventually, they, just, they, can, they were handing me money and going, you've got to take this, you've got to take this money for doing our band photo or our artist photo or whatever. And I, it was almost like it, I was so stubborn. I just, you know what I mean? Like for this thing that I was supposed to be doing, I never, I never picked it, it picked me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I totally understand. I've been trying to pay Sammy like a million dollars per episode for the story podcast, and she's just repeatedly been like, I don't need it's that true. much. It's true, yeah. You know like, I don't need happen. the money. I do it for passion. No, but it's still going to come to you based on this rule. You said something interesting. You said that's when you became a photographer, but it sounds like you were taking pictures well before that. Before, in your words, you were, quote-unquote, a photographer. When does someone have permission to call themselves or say, I am a photographer? Or an artist by any means. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on that? Absolutely. And I think that, I think that happens and that becomes a real thing for a person when they can't help themselves. They get up that day and they think about it immediately or they just find themselves doing it and before they even know that they tied their shoes for the day. You know what I mean? They can't help themselves. I know a lot of people that are like this, and they drive down the road, and they literally pull over and grab something they found, and they take it back, and they try to create something from it, or they just get up, and they just do it. They don't. They can't help themselves. I think that's when mm-hmm. you're professional. Not. You don't need the world to tell you when you're professional. You know, it, it's more about you just getting up, and it's being like you would if you were eating or, or breathing or putting your pants on. It's just something that, you, that is you, and, and you don't really know how to help it. You just do it, you know? So your ability to label yourself as something or attach yourself to a vocation is not tied to whether you're making money or not? Not necessarily, but I like that part in um, the book that you gave me, uh, Art of War. Is it right? War of Art. The War, War of Art. Of Art. I, I always love... get those two Yeah, backwards. I kind of switch it too sometimes. I love that book. There's like another book out there called the art of war yeah. like Chinese yeah. or something yeah like there is and it's 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 amazing book it's very long uh, <laughs> I read and the, I read and the half of it is very short and it is and it's more written to like Alan likes to read yeah but what I love about what he said was that he quoted someone else saying that inspiration starts every day at 9 a.m. and that's kind of how this is mm. it's that that to me is that's when then also now that you know this heading or this designation or this job title or whatever it is that you are in as an artist then then you got to get up every day mm-hmm. and you got to treat it fairly I mean I see guys and girls and people artists will spend so much money recording a project or getting the project ready but then they don't think about the after after that project's over you got to work that project man you got to you know what I mean I know so many people that have thousands of CDs sitting in their basement because they didn't plan past that making of the the initial project itself. You've got to get, you've got to think more than that. Mm-hmm. You've got to think, how am I going to, because you're treating that art work or that whatever you did unfairly by not giving it the same amount of love that you would if you were creating the yeah. art to begin with. Your business model has been interesting over the years. Now I understand it's very normal for your industry, but I think I grew up with this perception of photographers as people who, as they get hired, someone pays them a flat fee to come take some photos and then you get those photos but yet you've photographed presidents of the United States. You've photographed, you know, celebrity musicians. Not all of them came knocking on your door saying, Hey, I want you to come be my photographer. A lot of them, you went knocking on their door. And I've always admired that about you and your creative process that you're willing to approach these people. I think I knew from early on that no matter how you know, crazy or cutting edge or anything as far as artwork that would go in my portfolio, I thought, that's interesting, but but if a person doesn't have a connection with that in any way, they're just not. It doesn't matter how cool looking it is; they're just not going to relate to it. And you got to remember that now everyone is affected by imagery, almost too much imagery. It's almost the opposite of what happened mm-hmm. when I first started. When I first started, people were like, "Yeah," and I used to get from labels all the time. This is really cool looking, but it's weird. 
you know, or, and it wasn't just labels, it was editorial and, and I would get phone calls from all over the place. But the reality was they would call me like an ad agency in Chicago called me once. I won't name names. Um, if I could remember their name right now, I would totally say it. <laughs> But uh, I won't name names, but an ad agency called me once from Chicago, and they, they said, we love your work. We'd like you to work on this. It was something huge, like Mountain Dew or something like that. And they asked me where I was from, and I said Nashville, and they hung up on me. And so you have to remember that uh, this, we used to live in a town, or at least we, this area was not looked at favorably. You know, we, you know, now it's the oversaturation of images, and everyone loves, that's cool, and this is cool, and that's cool. But back then... 20 years ago, 15 years ago, people were like, I don't understand what I'm looking at. And they, that little thing that, you know, that helps you figure things out or it makes you uncomfortable, it's called art, they just didn't associate that with uh, commercial work for some strange reason. And, and, and it's, just, it's different now. It's just different, you know. And, and yeah. so now it's interesting. Now that it's flipped towards that direction, now there's, you know, when I first started, there was uh, 20 of us, maybe 25 in Nashville that did almost everything. And now there's, I looked it up one day. I looked up the word photography and Nashville in the same sentence, and it was something like 56,000 things or websites that had the word photography in it. Wow. And I'm sure it's the same everywhere, like in Tulsa or if it's, you know, Seattle or whatever. There's just more people out there doing things now. It's, there's more accessibility when it comes to photography because cameras are so amazing and intuitive nowadays, almost anyone can be a photographer. Do you sometimes struggle with that, that you've spent so many years investing and you know your stuff, but then there's someone who comes along that might not be as uh, experienced as you? Right. Um, no, not really. No. I, I, and here's the reason. The proof is in the pudding. And if they, if they bring it, no matter if they just started yesterday or 10 years from now, I respect that. It, you know, as a business mm. person, yeah, I'm like, Arr. you know, that guy's taken or that girl's taken this away from me, but I don't think about it like that. They deserve what was coming to them because they did it themselves. And I feel like that's the same thing for everybody. You can sit back and complain about this or you can add something to this. And that's what I've wanted to do and that's what I've tried to do. No matter how successful or successful I've been, I've tried to add something, you know. I think that's such good advice. I think a lot of the times people get too caught up in the competition, and that's not where your focus is needs to be if you want to grow. Your focus should be onwards and making your own brand or your own skills better. I could rather, not agree yeah. with you more. I could not agree with you more. Me too. I just feel like we spend so much time worrying about other things, and that's what you're doing is you're spending a lot of time worrying about other things. And, and my question to you is, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Are you actually creating something or are you standing back and kind of sitting on the sidelines and, you know, wanting to be in the game and mad that you're not, you know, and that's just not the way to be. The way to be is to get in there, even if it's not great, get in there and mix it up. You know, you have to leave an imprint. And mm. if you're not leaving an imprint on this, then there's, you weren't, mm. you didn't belong. Yeah. Yeah we've we've mentioned some of your successes you know i know your story uh, but i'm curious how you would answer this has it always been success have you always been successful i think i had in my mind i said this once in a blog or something like that and i remember it because it was <laughs> once you think things out like this it's really easier to kind of refer back to it sometimes and and, I, and a friend of mine calls this glorified stalking. <laughs> and all it was was that I just started thinking about all the things that I wanted to have in my portfolio. It doesn't matter if 
other people or even if I would get paid from the things that were in the portfolio. In other words, if I put a stormtrooper in my portfolio, which I did about nine years ago, I wanted that in the portfolio. I don't care if it, I don't even care about copyrights issues. I just wanted to have that. I wanted to, to be have that in there because that's the thing I wanted to show people the things that I loved. And so if it's the circus, it's the circus. If it's a stormtrooper, it's a stormtrooper. I don't care about the politics. I don't want to, I've got two Republicans and a Julian Assange in my portfolio. It doesn't mean I'm either one of those things. It just means that these are the things that I love. It doesn't mean that I love George W. Bush or to love Julian Assange, but I love some of the things that they say. I love my country. And I love just, you know, the idea of open government and some things like that. But I don't agree with everything or love everything. I just, I just put these things in there sure. because I like them. And so I focused on that, and I, that's, how I, that's how I wanted it to, to be shown, you know. Yeah, I love that. I think more of what I'm getting at is, you know, people see Dave Matthews and Julian Assange and presidents in your portfolio and they go, gosh, well, if my portfolio looked like that, then I too, like Alan Clark, would be going from success to success to success. But yet your story, like all of our stories, is littered with dips and peaks. Take us through how you survived some of the dips as an artist. Did how did you bounce back? Did it drive your creative process in different ways? Uh, when you came out of the low point, did it change how you approached art? Is there a specific story that comes to mind where you go, man, I have to bounce back from this? You know, magazines are going away. Print work is going pretty away. Pretty much defined exactly what I was <laughs> dealing with, you know, during the, the recession, the, the worst one during, um, you know, the last presidency. It was just horrible because um, at the same time, I was going through a divorce. I was uh, transitioning from film to digital. And then, you know, of course, the transition to social media. And so all these three things were like uh, there, you know, and if I'm sure I had a speaking engagement at that point too. Those are like four of the majors right there besides death. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, it was so many changes at the time and it was, I was just petrified, you know? And I think a lot of the things I didn't do, I think I held on too long to film because I was reluctant, because I just started figuring out how to do it. And I was reluctant to switch to digital because, it, you know, you gotta remember the digital was in its infancy and it's up against a, another medium that has been tried and true for 100 and 120 years, you know? So those two things together, I'm just like, I'm not gonna bet on digital just yet. I gotta see something from it. And it took a while to transition. The thing that I was slower on was social media. I just didn't see the importance of it. I couldn't see it because I just didn't know what it could do for me. And I kept thinking that the phone would ring even with that, you know, me not doing a thing. And that's kind of where I was. I'd gotten to this place where I didn't have to make outgoing calls. I was accepting ingoing coming calls all the time. And you get a little full of yourself. And I got a little full of myself. And I had done some great things. And I was in magazines constantly. And I had interviews constantly. And I was doing all these things. And if it had, you know, progressed, I think I... I think you might be talking to a different person right now. I think um, where I was going with that was um, a little too eat too much ego. I think that's that's where I was headed, and so I think I, uh, something happened to me, which was just getting a little <laughs> slice of humble pie, <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of took me down a notch. And I I started re you know, kind of reevaluating sure. the way that I looked at everything, my perspective on everything. Yeah. What. What changed your perspective the most? If, if I were to ask you, like, you know, which shoot that you've done changed the most personally? Oh, 
that's different than the one that Brody. Everyone, I've always said that it's the Sir George Martin shoot. I did a shoot with him in 97 wow. where I was able to work with the guy who worked with the Beatles for four or five hours, and that to me career-wise. But the one that changed me or at least affected me the most, I've had like two or three of them. For instance, uh, Rachel Scott. I don't know if you guys remember her, but she was uh, at Columbine. Um, she stood up. She was one of the ones that stood up either, I think, in the library. Mm-hmm. And they asked her if she was a Christian. She said, she said yes, and they shot her. And I had to shoot her um, uh, backpack and her journal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the journal had a hole in it from the gunshot, and there was blood on the other side of that. And I did the shoot. I remember setting it in the windowsill at Michael Gomez's studio because I'd rented it for the day. And I set that on the windowsill, shot it, did all these different angles, did everything, you know, bit my lip. And then I asked to be excused, and then I went to the bathroom and just lost it. And that one affected me like, wow, you know, this is important. And I started getting from that moment, I started getting this idea that chronicling people's lives is important doesn't matter if it's a wedding, doesn't matter if it's a music star or whatever, uh, an actor. Chronicling people's lives is important. This is a noble profession that I'm a part of. Gosh, I love that so much. You mentioned there was two or three shoots that moved you. Um, I'm super curious. What are some of the others? Um, I had to cover the uh, Oklahoma City bombing a couple of months after it happened, and I went to um, Oklahoma City to shoot it. And they'd put up a perimeter fence around it, and everybody was putting, um, you know, monuments. I don't know what you call it. Just people like were tokens. coming. Yeah. They yeah. would put stuffed animals. The parents would come down and leave some personal items mm-hmm. from some of the victims and some of the victims that were older. And I remember this grandmother. There was these two little sweet little black boys that had died in the daycare. And the grandmother came down, and she had put their toothbrushes uh, in a Ziploc and put it on the fence. And uh, I I couldn't go on. I had to leave, and I realized that day that I couldn't, I couldn't be a photojournalist. I'm, this is just too much. I just get overwhelmed. I need to kind of do things that don't, <laughs> that aren't so overwhelming because it was just, it was too much. I just, I think at the time Clayton was maybe a couple of weeks old, and I was, I had to walk away. You know, I finished the shoot and I did everything, but it was just, it was too much. Yeah. So you went back to the circus. <laughs> yeah. Cut to a few years later, I went and found, uh, I just have loved circuses since I was a kid. So I, I hunted, I hunted the, them down and, and said, can I follow you guys around for a while? And I don't know why Ringham Brothers and Barman Bailey let me do that to this day. I don't know why they let me do it, but I did it. And, and now, uh, they're gone. You know, I mean, the elephants were gone first and I got all these pictures of them. And then now the circuits circus itself is gone. And so I feel like something's going to happen with that collection. I don't know quite what's about to happen with that, but I know something's going to happen with that because no one, I don't think anybody has really great portraits like I did of them. So that's going to be interesting. Totally. It was before the elephants went away. Yeah. So one of the last tours you were at with them, that's just really cool. You have this like massive. It's a nine foot by nine foot print on vinyl because wow. we couldn't print anything bigger on like a normal piece of paper it was a nine foot by nine foot print on vinyl and then I'd, I popped it off the frame they told me that she was coming to town with the blue circus and so I popped it off the frame and took it down there and had her sign it wow by her he means the elephant uh, yeah Asia oh my gosh yeah they put like a you know a paintbrush or something in her trunk isn't that amazing that's amazing it's a purple metallic ink that they I picked it out amazing. specifically because it was uh, something that wouldn't be toxic to the elephant it was the only one that <laughs> wasn't toxic to the elephant. That's so awesome. 
you, you know what's interesting is one of my top five strengths on Strengths Finder uh, is Activator. <clears throat> and that's dangerous because my top second strength is ideation, which means you can start coming up with all these ideas and you feel like you have to act on them because to, to ignore them, you know, that potential will drive you crazy. I think you have some of that in you as well. Um, even in the story that you just told, because you didn't know the circus was going to end. No, uh, You just felt compelled to go photograph the circus. Had you waited and not acted on that idea like you always do, you know, <laughs> one of the, one of the things you're most passionate about having in your portfolio wouldn't exist can you give, maybe give some advice to other artists out there? Is it really as simple as, oh, I should really go do this or something they've been telling themselves for years? I mean, eventually it might be too late, right? I mean, in that case of the circus, you would have missed that opportunity. What would you say to those people? Get off the couch and go do it? That would be, a, yeah, that would be a way to say it, but I think... A lot of resistance? <laughs> yeah, man, and there's a lot of resistance to it. I've, I've, it happens all the time. I said that during the local story gathering here in Nashville. Is this, I did, uh, you know, that one photo shoot with the snow, and the, it looks like a Game of Thrones shoot that I did, and, you know, it was, I know how difficult it was going to be, and the guy that wanted to do this with me, the designer, I just did not want to do it. And almost all of these things are great as ideas, but actual execution of the idea is always going to be hard and difficult. And that's when you know that you're doing the right thing. Mm. That's how you know, because it's so difficult and so hard to do. And, you know, to me, that little feeling that tells you not to do it, that's called future regret. That's what that ends up looking like. When that thing gestates, that ends up being future regret. Mm. That little thing telling you not to do this thing, this amazing possible idea that could be something that lasts forever, you just said no to. So it's not just get off the couch. It doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter how far it might take you. If you don't do that thing, it will always be your regret. And you don't want that. You don't want that. Because some of these things you cannot get back. You know, especially like the circus thing for me. If I had not done that, I don't regret that at all. And I have a lot of those things in my portfolio. How do you make decisions on what to do and what not to do? How do you know that you're not going to regret saying no? You don't. <laughs> I would love to tell you that you do, but you don't. I mean, the thing about this is, you now there's a thing about like, you know, there's some, there's some cost to this. You know, there's some things I've had to have my, ch you know, my children have said to me, like things like, uh, you didn't play with me enough. You know, that was a hard one. And uh, sometimes I think you end up being blind to some of the people that are around you while you're making these decisions. Now, I would, I would suggest you <laughs> weigh these things out, obviously. Doesn't mean say no to nine out of 10, but you know what I mean? Be fair and be smart about it. Use your sure. wisdom and ask people around you. And, and if anybody loves you and knows you well enough, they'll know when you're, when you're messing up, you know, they'll know when you're like, Hey, you might need to stay home on this one, <laughs> you know, but at the same time you have to just, you know, you have to be willing to risk something. This is all about risk. And, you know, I wouldn't risk your personal relationships or anything like that. I did that. I mean, I did it. And that wasn't great. Uh, and I've had to do a lot of work lately just to kind of make up for some of those things. But I would say, be smart, you know, be kind, be firm, be smart. I've heard you talk often about the, uh, you know, just establishing a connection with the subject that you're shooting. There's always this little thing that you could tell, the spark when it happens. And everything from that point forward in the shoot is different. Talk a little about that. I say this sometimes and people always laugh because it sounds like it's like not a good thing to say, but it is a good thing to say. And that is, 
if any of you guys have ever played tennis, on the tennis racket itself, at the very bottom of the net, in the middle, right near the handle, there's a little part, part there called the sweet spot. And anybody that plays tennis knows that that's the sweet spot. You get most of your power. You get every from, everything from that, that little place. And everybody has that on them. Everyone has that little place on them. And so it's hard to find that sometimes. Like it's, it's an angle mainly. And, you know, I'm talking about strictly from a technical aspect. Uh, but they don't let you see that. And it takes a little bit to work past that. So sometimes you have to almost like you do look over here, you know, and the actual tricks going on or the illusions going on in your left hand, you know what I mean? So you kind of have to either distract them or you have to tell them a joke or you have to find something that they can relate to. I would suggest doing research on anyone, everyone that you ever work with. That's what I do. I spend hours just going through looking through stories and things like that. And, and, and honestly, just kind of thinking about it. I mean, you can call it meditating or you can call it whatever you want, but I just think about it. And then I'll go into the shoot and I'm ready. And, and it happens almost every single time. I'll find something to connect with that person on. And it surprises them usually. And, but it's valuable because it, it lets, they let their guard down when that happens. And when that happens, you can get some amazing looking stuff. Mm. And it's not easy. It's not easy, but it takes you doing some work and thinking about things and, and trying to find that connection with them because it's really, really important for you to have a connection with yeah. anyone and everyone that you shoot. Yeah, agreed. And I can even remember the very first photo shoot that we had together. I remember seeing the images before that connection and then afterwards. And there's just this moment when you look at them that you can tell like, oh, what happened there between that picture and that picture? Because everything after that changed. Mm -hmm. I think in many ways, being on the opposite end of the camera, it has a lot to do with trust. It's like I mm -hmm. let you in. Mm -hmm. I, I trusted you from that point forward. And what's fascinating to me, what's fascinating to me about that is there are some people in your portfolio who don't let many people close to them. They don't trust many people. And you're now not just their photographer, but you're, you're their friend. Mm -hmm. How, and I understand that if you can't talk about this, but, but even someone like Julian Assange, you know, there's, there's someone who, <laughs> I don't think it's just a choice. I don't think you can afford to trust. If anybody has right? a good case for being paranoid, it's him. Yeah. So how does, how does something like that happen? How do you go from being just a photographer to, Alan, Alan, I want you to come with me to my court cases and my trials. I want you to come to my home and hang out with me and photograph me. Where does that spark come from? I think people are surrounded by yes men and yes women. I think people can't trust. What do they say? They say that fame doesn't change you, but it changes everyone around you. And I think that's, that can be true. And I think it's hard to know. I mean, some of these people get in because you've known them for 10 years. And some of these people get in because they work for you. And so it's hard to know when you're in that position, not just trust, but, you know, am I in a vacuum? Are these people telling me what I want to hear? Is this mm. truth? And so what I do is I make no mistake by letting them know almost immediately that I do not care who they are, even though it's awesome who they are. I don't care. I don't care. And I will tell that to so many people so many times. I'm just like, look, I'm, it's great to be here today, but let me tell you something. I don't want anything from you. I don't need anything from you. And I will sometimes kind of poke fun of them. I'll make fun of them a little bit just to see how they take that. And, and um, they look at me, and if they can take it, then I know exactly where I am with them. And I know exactly how to start this conversation or to, you know, what to talk about and all that kind of stuff. And with him, it was very interesting. He, um, I just Googled him with him sitting next to me. 
And we both sat down and we looked at all the photos and every person that worked for the Telegraph to magazines, everyone wanted him to look like the evil Oz warlord guy that sat behind the computer and hacked everything. And I remember the birthday card, you know, the birthday card. Somebody gave me a birthday card because our birthdays, his birthday is July the 3rd and mine's the 4th. And somebody gave me a birthday card because they knew I had some affiliation with him. And it, I mean, the birthday card they gave me was horrible. He looked like a vulture with hair. And I think that's that's all that people saw from him at that time. And that was 2012. And I just looked at all this stuff and I said, it's, it's funny because, you know, here we are sitting in the story office, but I'm all about, I've always been about story for me. That's what it's been about for me. And I told him, you can, you've got to stop letting other people tell your story, even just visually. It doesn't mean what you're saying in a publicity blurb or whatever. It means visually. You've got to stop letting other people tell your story. You've got to get in there and show them your softer side, that you are human. And so he loved that idea because he looked at the same pictures I looked at and he realized that hurts. Mm. You know, that's not, that's, that's not easy to look at. And I said, you've got to offer something else. And so we went about trying to figure out how to do that. And we did it. We went and did a whole day's photo shoot. And I just tried to make him look handsome because honestly, he, he's not a bad looking guy. I tried to make him look approachable. He is approachable when he lets himself be. And we did all these things to kind of tell a different story, and it actually softened. I know it did because how it was previous to me going there and how it was after I left, people's view of him changed. And no one, I'm not trying to think I'm some magnanimous person, but I know what, what I did affected him as much as it affected me. And that was to see himself in a different light, literally. And I, I know that that happened. I mean, he was down to the point of him walking out, and we were on... CNN Russia and all kinds of stuff. I told him exactly how to walk in. He got down to where he trusted me so much. We'd get out of the cab and he would ask me, what do I do? And I'd say, yesterday they said he looked old and haggard. I'm not kidding. So CNN Russia said he looked old and haggard when he walked into the thing because he had his glasses on from the cab to the courtroom. I said, no, today leave him off. And I said, just get out of the cab, walk to the front steps, pause for a second, put the glasses on walk into the courtroom and he did it and then that day CNN said today he looked optimistic as he walked into the courtroom it was just weird how their whole perspective and how, like even just something subtle like that you know mm. and every time he came out I kept telling him take the sun, take the glasses off when you leave they, you don't need to look older you've already got gray hair apparently forgotten that <laughs> I mean he's had gray hair the whole time this thing happened and I just made sure that every time he walked out he was smiling or confident and I tried to say look when you walk out don't look like you've just lost something look like you you're there and you've got this and the the shot that I took of him in the crowd he looks like he's the only one in control in that shot I ended up winning an APA award for that which I was really happy with um, but he, if you look at the shot, it looks amazing because he's the only one that looks like he's in control. The whole wow. crowd is utter chaos, and he's the only one looking straight at the camera. It's pretty amazing. It is amazing. Man, I love that story. I I, <laughs> I remember when you came home from the trip, and, and you were telling us that story. And I just remember being in awe that yeah, what's interesting is I don't even think I wasn't you know, directing story yet as a community, as a movement, as a conference. And uh, even back then, you know, I remember thinking about just the power of narrative. Um, you know, that, that storytelling consists not just of stringing a bunch of words together or not just a photograph, but we all know that communication is nonverbal uh, and that certain things that we do with our, 
facial expressions or our hand motions, that they're all telling a story. What I love about that story is that it reminds us of the power of narrative and just that idea that, that we can communicate a certain narrative, that we can establish a certain idea and story, um, you know, without, without even using words. Um, I think it's amazing that it also changed, you know, not just the story that you were telling, but that it worked, that other people, uh, in that case, the media or CNN, they started telling a different story. I'm curious what you would say to other artists out there, photographers or anyone who really works in a visual medium. What would you say to those who maybe feel like they are not storytellers? Maybe they think, oh, I'm, I'm a photographer or I'm a painter. I'm an artist, but I'm not a storyteller. Is it, is it true that all visual artists are not storytellers or are all of them storytellers and maybe just not aware of it yet? One of my favorite photographers in the whole world is this guy named Dan Winters. And he always used to say, there's a Pulitzer Prize in every place you are. And I was like, really? Because right now we're just standing next to a wall and there's literally nothing else around us. When he told me that, and I was, that's all I could think about. Like, I don't, how about right here? You know? <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of how it is sometimes. There's, there's that world that you're standing in and you, there's really nothing there. But I, outside of that, I, I think it's true. And I think there is a story. There's a story. There, everyone has one. Uh, they're all important. That's the reason why I said chronicling people's lives is important. But if you don't feel like you are a storyteller, that just means you haven't been telling them. It doesn't mean you can't tell them. So even if it's crude, even if it's uh, you think it's not very well written or even if it's not very well painted or shot, tell it anyway. See what happens. I love that so much. What's something that you think is crazy that not a lot of people know about you? I would say probably the time that I wore Miss America's crown. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? That. Yeah. You have to tell that story. Well, uh, I was shooting Heather Whitestone, and she was the one, I don't know if anybody remembers, but uh, there was a Miss America that was deaf, actually. And she lived in Birmingham, and we were going to shoot this for a cover of a magazine, and I wanted to make her laugh. And so... You know, when you have to deal with that issue, and what I mean by issue is just the, the struggle of trying to make someone laugh. Usually it's me talking, and that doesn't work. You know, if she has to, she had to watch, she would have to watch my mouth when I would talk and stuff. And so I was like, man, I don't know any jokes or anything. So I kept thinking, okay, then we're going to do shenanigans. And so I just picked up the crown, and I kind of put it on, put it on and she... She just started dying laughing. It was exactly what I'd hoped because I don't know if you guys have seen me, but me wearing a crown is not the prettiest sight in the whole world. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. What is your favorite book? Uh, that's a tough one. Only or what, what book has impacted your career the most? I would say The Journey is the Destination about the life of Dan Eldon. Uh, it's a pretty great book. Uh, if you get a chance, go and go and check it out. There's actually a movie I've been following it closely. There's a movie that's about to come out about this, uh, but his life. Uh, this guy basically went to Africa, and he he didn't know. It's almost the same thing like what I was saying. He just didn't know any better. All he wanted to do was help people. So he got this uh, Land Rover or whatever, and he and his friends would just travel across Africa and uh, help people dig a well, help people find a source of water, help them get food or something like that. And they were all kind of rich kids, which I thought was kind of cool that they, they kind of stepped outside of their little comfort zone and they did this. And uh, while he did this, he created journals and he shot tons and tons and tons of photographs. And he created 11 journals, I believe, out of this. 
And then as a career, he ended up being a photographer for Reuters. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a journalist and he was, he was killed in Somalia uh, at the age of 22. The crowd turned on all the journalists and killed, I believe it was either five or nine of them. And he was one of them. And this guy lived an extraordinary life and it was all about what we were talking about. It's all about getting in there and mixing it up, getting outside of your comfort zone, you know, yeah. trying to find this thing, even if it's just doing it while you're doing it and you're trying to figure it out, go do it. And that's kind of what he did. And that, that guy's life was inspiring to me. Mm. Are there any other photographers who have been a huge inspiration for you? Uh, Dan Winters for one, just because he will, he's worked, he had a movie background. He would build props and things like that in movies. And I, I love that he would, if he couldn't find an environment, he would just create the environment. Yeah. He would actually physically create it. And I'm That's talking, cool. you should see some of this stuff. It's like, wait a minute, he built that? Like, there's a shot he did of Helen Mirren, and it looks like a loft in England. And it's just, you know, they probably built it at the turn of the century, and it's just falling apart. No, he built the whole thing. Wow. It's like he's a set builder with, as a photographer, you know, and he's amazing. Wow. Just to see the, these amazing sets that he would make for a shoot. That's totally yeah. inspiring to me. What has been your greatest source of inspiration, especially when you're in a rut? Honestly, I will take a trip. I will go to a place that I know that is rife with locations or people or something. I'll just go. and Or, you know, sometimes I'll just walk around the city of Nashville. I'll just get out and mm. walk around and just like go just shoot. Just getting out of yeah. your space, yeah. It's yeah. more about just going and physically doing. It's almost like your hands need something to do or like building or painting or whatever it is. You know, you just got to go do it. And that's the main thing is just getting out of your rut is usually, it's almost a physical answer almost every time. Yeah. yeah. Do you take your camera? Absolutely. Some days I don't. There's, it's funny is I, I have a lot of shots that I probably could have won a Pulitzer Prize and the camera wasn't even anywhere near me. There was one in particular with, with Julian Assange he excused, this is so crazy, he excused everyone after the last day, he was in the um, rural court of justice. The last day, uh, he had a flak jacket on, he wore a flak jacket every day, and he wore it under his suit. And there's these really cool photos of the two of us getting our photo made together. And uh, I'm trying to tickle him to make him laugh. <laughs> and so I've got this shot of me tickling him and me laughing and him laughing. And then after that, we walked inside. He excused everyone. And I'm talking like even the head of uh, Frontline Media, the guy who owned the building, the guy that let him stay in the house under house arrest. He excused every single person, including his girlfriend at the time. And it was just the two of us sitting in the conference room together. That's the level of trust we'd had at that point. And uh, he sat in the room with this massive conference table, and all he had on was the flak jacket you know, at least that you could see from the table up. And he was sitting at his laptop. Imagine a shot of Julian Assange sitting at a massive table with a laptop and a flak jacket. Does that not say everything that that guy's having to deal with or everything that that guy's about? And because he trusted me, I did not take that photo. Not because I couldn't, but because he trusted me. And to me, that's, that's the level of trust sometimes you have to offer these guys. Now we all have cameras you know, in our pockets. We have these little supercomputers. I guess in many ways, everyone listening to this podcast is a photographer, regardless of whether it's how they make their money or what they call their vocation. What closing advice would you give to everyone out there listening? Here's 
not not like here's how to set your exposure, or here's what app you should download. But to all of the moms and you know teachers, college students, you know, regardless of what type of creative pursuit or creative life they're living, because everyone is now a photographer, what is your advice to everyone? My advice is this, and a lot of people will focus on giving and what this photo can do and charity and all that type of stuff, and I think that stuff is wonderful. But don't forget that being great can affect just about everybody as well. So when you do your shot or you're thinking about that shot, it's usually the thing that gnaws at you and keeps you awake at night. If you take that shot, if you, if you decide to be a photographer, work really hard on trying to do that thing through the lens. Don't try to think about it from a perspective of, let me add these things to it in Photoshop or whatever. Just take it out. Do, think out your shot before you shoot it. And just really spend the time treating that, that shot that you want so bad with all the respect that it deserves. And then, and then think about, you know, that this, this image itself could be so amazing that it affects someone. Think like that, because then some things will happen. You never know what will happen. I absolutely love Alan. Um, you know, I mentioned it. He's a close friend of mine, um, but I, he's just the kind of guy that everyone he meets becomes a close friend of his because of the way that you end up trusting him. There's just something mm-hmm. special, which I think is why he's ended up in these situations all over the world, taking photos with all the amazing, all these amazing people who aren't quick to trust people. I think my favorite part of that was him telling the story about Julian Assange sitting at mm-hmm. the table and his, you know flak jacket basically and i'm and i'm like how great would have would the temptation have been to pick up a camera and take that photo and i think it's something that we're probably all struggling with even if we're not professional photographers Mm. because we live in a culture that is so driven by social media traffic and the addiction to the approval of others like we all want the like so bad we're always looking for the shot so badly and i think maybe there are times where you know we may not be hanging out with this worldwide icon who's in the media because of the controversy, but like maybe we shouldn't always reach for our camera. Maybe there should be more moments like Alan had in our everyday sure. lives, including my own life with my own kids sometimes sure. where I'm like, yeah. oh, this would make an adorable photo, but maybe I should just, just soak it in. Just put it away. Just yeah. put it away. Yeah. yeah. That I was like a powerful that. story. Yeah. That was probably one of my favorite stories I heard him tell too. I love how much he talked about the importance of connecting with your subject that you're shooting for portraits. I think that's a really wise lesson, whether you're a photographer and knowing that you need to connect with the person that you're shooting, Mm -hmm. or if you're a writer, knowing who your audience is, knowing it's all about art is all about connection and like knowing who you're working with and who it's for. I can. And without that, the art is not as powerful, and I think we can forget that sometimes. Agreed. I didn't think about writers, but it's true. As I think back to all the interviews I've done over the years with different media people, mm-hmm. I, I look back sometimes when I when I see the article come out mm-hmm. on, online or in print or in a magazine, uh, and I'm like, oh, that that was really good. Like that writer did a great job. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as I think back on some of those times, I remember early on in the call or early on in the interview, there was something we were joking around or. 
you know, there was that spark that Alan was talking right. about. They connected with me on a personal level, which kind of made me trust them. I think it opened up totally. a little bit more. And it made it easier for them to share your story or your personality mm-hmm. with readers. Yeah. And yeah, they, 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 and in many ways they, they sort of push you off your script. Right. Right. Yeah. Like you, I've done a lot of radio interviews and promotion of shows and you have your script, right? And they always ask me your the pitch. same questions, yeah. right? Yeah. But the ones that spend a few minutes before the call, you know, asking me some personal questions about my family or joking around a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those interviews feel different. So I think it's true. Yeah. You're right. It's true of everyone to look for that spark. Right. Build the trust. Find establish connection. a relationship, right. a connection, and then do the work. That's amazing. We can keep in touch with Alan uh, online. His website that I mentioned earlier with all his portfolio on it that I was scrolling through. That's Alan Clark Photography.com. He spells Alan A L L E N. So Alan Clark Photography.com. On Twitter, he's Alan Clark Photo. On Instagram, he's Alan Clark Pick. Um, but what a privilege to have a sort of Nashville photography legend come stop by the studio and be on this episode of the Story Podcast. Thank you guys for listening in and uh, all the ways that you're supporting our community. Um, we do this because we love what you guys are doing. We want to keep you inspired to keep doing great work and keep telling great stories. We, You've heard us say it a million times by now, but we really believe that those stories are what shape the way the world looks. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we'd love to know how we can best serve you guys. Um, there's still a few tickets left for the Brad Montague workshops. Uh, in Chicago. I think we're down to like five or six seats left. Wow. Uh, the tickets for Denver and Los Angeles are going very quickly. We just announced those. Uh, at this time of recording, they were announced yesterday online and via email. So if you live in Los Angeles or Denver or close to those, uh, we just got an email from someone today from Knoxville that's flying to Denver. So oh my gosh. there are people like flying across <laughs> the country to hang out with Brad Montague, which is not surprising to me whatsoever. He is incredible. So more information about all of that stuff and all the other cool stuff we're working on is at storygatherings.com. Stay tuned. We have some huge, huge conference updates coming to you guys over the course of the next few weeks. Until then, um, thanks for listening. Sammy, thanks for joining me today. Of course. I like when you get to jump in on these interviews. They're so much better. Yeah, me too. We'll see you guys next week.